The new jobs report for February came out today. Looking good. 235,000 jobs added. Unemployment is down to 4.7%. Well, unemployment by the metric by which most presidents measure it. Unclear whether Trump is going to embrace that metric or not, considering that a week ago, two weeks ago, he said 94 million Americans are out of the labor force. There's so much to pick apart there. (laughs) My Twitter feed this morning went bananas over the jobs numbers Mm -hmm. and bananas over the Trump administration's treatment of the numbers. Do they um, basically make an about face and embrace these numbers and take credit for them, which is a specious argument? It, um, it is, but almost just, certainly he can't take credit for Just it. to be fair, he's not wrong that 94 million Americans are out of work. Are not working full-time. Right, but many of those are not looking for work. They're, many of them are infants or... No, 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 not infants. No, they're students, because it only starts counting at 16. Oh, okay. So they're students. Retirees? Oh, retirees. They're stay-at-home moms and dads. Why right. should they be counted? Right. Let's say we give it to him, which is fine. I'm not. It's not even that big of a deal. He spent the last, at least the campaign, if right. not that weird period of time where he was sniping from the sidelines during the Obama administration, mm-hmm. basically asserting that these numbers are fabrications, mm-hmm. that they're made up. Um, he clearly has no understanding of statistics, of the way that the census works, that the way job data is aggregated. It's really frightening on a lot of levels. I think he embraces it. I mean, if he treats it in any way like his poll numbers, he embraced that the quick polls said that he did a good job, despite the fact that he's been railing against how the polls are rigged against him. What's better or worse, in your opinion? A president that embraces reality when it's convenient for him or her, or a president that out of hand 100% of the time rejects reality. They're both very slippery situations. Consistency is preferred. (laughs) Right. So even if he's a lunatic, if he's a consistent lunatic. Right. Which, can I give you a fast, a quick update? Yeah. According to today's briefing, this is what Spicer said. I I talked to the president prior to this, uh, and he said to quote him very clearly, they may have been phony in the past, but it's very real now. This is insane. Who is this man? (laughs) Who is this man that's in charge of our country? I'm going to have a panic attack while we record this podcast. Like, how does that even make sense? It would be one thing if last month, the last month under which the jobs report was on Obama's watch, they were at like 8% and now suddenly, or rather vice versa, if they were at 1% last month and now they're up to 4.7%, then you can say clearly the numbers are inauthentic. But it's a pretty clear trajectory. They were at 4.9% last month. They're at 4.7% this month. Not only that, but um, someone on my Twitter feed had tweeted that if you look at the historical job growth numbers, the numbers for February 2017 are within, I think it was fewer than 10,000 jobs of variation from February of 2016 and February of 2015. So basically this is a nearly identical healthy February job growth number Mm -hmm. in line to within a single digit percentage point, if not less from the last two. I read that that's how you're supposed to look at the jobs report, but it's so easy to look at it, to compare it to last month, but you're supposed to compare it to the same month from last year. So that's a better rubric. Right. And so much stuff is, is cyclical, right? Right. I'm still stunned by this. They may have been phony in the past, but I can't, it's, It's like a cross between it's it's a cross between mafioso tactics and dictator tactics. I mean, it's staggering how much 
how much I'm acclimating to right. his insanity. That's like a Banana Republic dictator quote right there. If, if Robert Mugabe had said that, we BBC News would have had a field day with that mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another thing that really drives me crazy is how we're seeing more and more how there's that core of supporters of his that really eat it up. They're, they're real loyalists. And that's really frightening. Along those lines, what's frightening to me is if he alone can determine when the unemployment numbers are real and when they're fake, then what happens when they genuinely go to seven under his administration? Yeah. Or eight. That's a staggering, a staggering thought. There's another question, too, that he has promised 25 million jobs created over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about how there will not be 25 million people um, net added to the workforce in America in the next 10 years. That right. for all, if you include the people that retire and the new students that join the workforce and the babies that are born and the immigrants that come in, right. that does not equal 25 million new people in the next 10 years. And if we're at 4.7% unemployment now, right. it kind of makes you wonder. If I were to anticipate his very loose relationship with the facts, there's a lot of wiggle room that you get in politics, I think, where there is the de facto relationship with the English language, mm-hmm. the de facto relationship with reality that most people have, that most politicians have, that most informed voters have, that most journalists have, so that when someone like Donald Trump says, I'm going to create 25 million jobs in 10 years, you assume that that's net, a net gain of 25 million right. jobs. I could see a world where like uh, 30 million jobs are eliminated, right? right? We talked about all the drivers losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. And... Some new invent, some new invention occurs in the next four years, right? Mm-hmm. There's some completely new job, and uh, he takes credit for those as part of his net gain. I think it's, I think that would be a little bit of acrobatics for him, but it's still interesting. To that point as well, and I, I, I really want to say this because it's just a little supporting evidence that I'm, I'm not making up the idea that a new job could be invented. Mm-hmm. A stat was released um, by a blog called Apple Insider. In the last nine years, the estimates here are that uh, $60 billion of profits and 1.4 million full-time jobs. Whoa in the last nine years are directly attributable to the app store mm-hmm. existing. And I'm one of those people, right? I'm right. one of those jobs. Uh, so this isn't some far away thing for me. Yeah. And it's staggering to think that when George W. Bush was president, this was an industry, the industry existed. Right. But this specific thing didn't exist yet. Right. And now 1.4 million Americans make their living. So yeah, something new could be invented. I don't know what it is. And could create a lot of jobs, yeah. but it assumes that other jobs aren't destroyed. Let's go back to the job reports number. Okay. Job reports are a very important metric. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump promises a lot of things. A lot of politicians promise a lot of things. The question is, what empirical measures do you rank or rate a president against? Mm-hmm. How do you get independent, nonpartisan data mm-hmm. to support or detract from a politician's claims? Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you measure their success? And the reason this is important is that you and I have talked a lot about our families and how a lot of our family members are conservative. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about how your dad and my dad value, in their mind, conservative ideals Uh because they are backed up by 
business and success and growth and kind of capitalist themes sure. back up their ideas. And I think it's one of the, on its face, one of the strongest themes in favor of Donald Trump's presidency, mm-hmm. right? He's he's a businessman. He's run a business before. All we need is to kick out all those dirty politicians that don't know what they're doing, those bureaucrats, those lazy bureaucrats, mm-hmm. and just put someone with common sense and business acumen in the White House to clean it all up. That, for the record, was not me talking. That was my riffing and regurgitating a lot of stuff I hear right. both in my network, my family, et cetera. Um, and I think it falls to smithereens. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of problems with the idea of a business person as a politician, especially as a president, because the government is not a business mm-hmm. in a lot of very important ways. But let's pause that maybe for another day. I want to talk, though, about how even if it were a good idea to put a business person in the White House, mm-hmm. let's say like an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos or uh, a Meg Whitman, Donald Trump meets none of the criteria, as far as I can see, being in the startup and entrepreneurial world my mm-hmm. entire career, as far as I can see, Donald Trump meets none of the business acumen traits that you would want in a quote-unquote businessman in the White House to clean things up. Well, I'm curious to hear what traits you're referring to, because I have an idea, but go ahead. In business, um, there's a term. I didn't know what this was coming out of school. This is something I learned in my in my career. Key performance indicator. Mm-hmm. And what KPIs come down to are setting metrics for yourself by which you are going to judge yourself in the future. Sure. Collecting data about those metrics and then judging yourself at a later point on how you did by the metrics that you yourself set up. So can the- I c- condense all that? Yeah. Um, so it's no secret that I supported Governor Martin O'Malley for president in 2015 and into 2016. And when he was governor of Maryland, before that he was mayor of Baltimore, he implemented a data-driven initiative called CityStat because you need to know where the problem is before you can fix it. And things that get measured are things that get done. It's so true, and I had never thought about that before, that you, how can you improve anything if you're not measuring it? And I guess the step kind of before that that you're talking about is like, before you can even measure it, you have to set the goal. Exactly. And that's what, if I'm understanding correctly, that's what a KPI is. Exactly. Okay. Now, in the business world, it's usually sales numbers, or in the startup world, particularly the software startup world, it's sometimes uh, uh, monthly or weekly or daily active users on your platform. Sure. It can be a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, some KPIs that some companies set are employee happiness, right? The, the employees do surveys to kind of give feedback about how happy they are at the mm-hmm. company. Rule number one of running a business is setting goals for yourself, measuring, uh, gathering data about how you're doing empirically and realistically, mm-hmm. and then judging yourself against those goals. Not right. only for yourself, but for your employees, right? For your lieutenants mm-hmm. that are handling various initiatives. So not only is our first business person in chief not setting KPIs, but he's also manipulating the validity of the data that we would measure, right? He's like, by undermining the job data, Mm -hmm. he's questioning the integrity of the empirical data that we would use to judge the success or failure of his presidency. Right. Which is a very pernicious thing. Yeah. I'm curious if, about like if maybe there's more of a history of business people in the American in American politics in general or running for the American presidency or maybe successfully becoming presidents. In terms of the presidency, no, straight up, I'm a business person. I've never held elected or appointed office before. 
No candidate who fits that description has ever been elected president, certainly, and to my knowledge, has never been a, a nominee for any major party. That would be interesting to look into. Because you have people like Mitt Romney, Herbert Hoover, I'm trying to think of a Democrat, I'm sure there is one, who have experience in business, right? Mitt, uh, Mitt Romney was... Current senator from Virginia, Mark Warner, might fit that bill. Sure, He's not but running saying, for president. I'm saying running, presidential candidates. Right. Sure, many have come who have business experience. Herbert Hoover ran a mining company. Mitt Romney ran his business consultation firm or whatever it is. Bain Capital is, yeah, it's a huge investment firm. But they also had experience in public service. Yes. So in that way, I'm not sure that there is a parallel. What's crazy is the the my dad's dream of a business person in the White House would have been Mitt Romney. Because not only, because Mitt Romney is in, was in private equity, right? So his job was not just to play around with financial instruments, right? Mm-hmm. His job was to identify opportunities right. in failing businesses, to acquire those failing businesses, turn them around, and then either IPO them or sell them for a net gain or for a profit. So he actually has experience in understanding what is causing an organization to fail, right. fixing it, and turning around and, and turning it into at least on paper or at least financially speaking, a success. And Donald Trump doesn't have any of that experience or ability. That's true. Nor has he been governor of Massachusetts. Right. And it's interesting that in 2012, Mitt Romney kind of ran away from his record as governor of Massachusetts because he was so unpopular he didn't run for re-election. And his key legislative victory, right, which is now called Romney Care, was basically integrated into Obamacare. I mean, the, the individual mandate comes from... Massachusetts under Romney. So it's interesting that he ran away from his record in public service towards business. In some ways, I think that that set the stage for the Republicans to nominate Donald Trump because it's like, oh, we've already nominated a businessman four years ago. It's like, yeah, but he was also governor of Massachusetts. But aside from that, I want to point out that Bain Capital is not a publicly traded company. So while he is, uh, he has to answer to investors he doesn't have to answer to shareholders. Right. And I would feel much more comfortable with someone like Rex Tillerson being the nominee for president, right. even though I disagree with almost everything Rex Tillerson believes in. At least he understands, you know, that you have to wake up in the morning and say the things that are going to keep your stock price at its current point or make it rise. You don't just get to wake up and, you know, hang up on the prime minister of Australia because right. you've had a long day. The way publicly traded and private companies are are governed are totally different. Right. It's something that I didn't know uh, even coming out of school um, that's really blown my mind. So I think you're, that's actually a fantastic point. Uh, and I think that a lot of people, I mean, I agree with you. I don't quite understand. I mean, aside from the biography of Steve Jobs that I read, I don't fully understand how CEOs are selected or fired or who they answer to or, or all that stuff. But I especially think that the average American voter, and I don't use that term pejoratively considering that I'm lumping myself in with it, the average American voter doesn't understand the difference between a publicly traded company and a privately held company. I think you alluded to it earlier with your Rex Tillerson, Mitt Romney uh, allegory, allegory. your Rex Tillerson, Mitt Romney illusion. Private companies have tremendous leeway Mm -hmm. uh, in how they do their business. They are not answerable to really anyone mm-hmm. um, shy of committing fraud, right? You can't break the laws of right. the land. But ultimately, you're de facto answerable to your investors. And even then, there are very few guardrails to that. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas when you're a publicly traded company, you have a fiduciary duty to your shareholders. Right. You have to deal with the Securities and Exchange Commission. There are tremendous amounts of uh, there are ethical, like a lot of ethical guidelines, laws, and regulations that you need to comply with. Um, there's there are record keeping laws that you need to right. comply with, um, and so just the kind of process, right, that is involved in running an organization that is publicly traded versus a private company is tremendous. So you're right in that way. Rex Tillerson is probably 10 times more qualified than Mitt Romney was, mm -hmm. and Mitt Romney's probably 100 times more <laughs> qualified than Donald Trump. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I want to get back to talking about KPIs because I've been thinking a lot about how are the ways that we should measure a presidency? There are the kind of common sense ones that I think are a little bit baloney, right? Like the, a big one's the stock market. But all of the common sense ones, yeah, I'm, okay, great. Let's start with the stock market because all of the common sense ways that you would measure a presidency have serious problems serious with problems. them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you want to start with the stock market? Sure. The stock market generally goes up every year. So by that measurement, every president is a good president. <laughs> yeah. With very few exceptions. I mean, And if I, you take the long view as well, it's only gone up. The right. stock market's not lower than it was I, I when, it, when, when it was first created in the early 1800s. I would be curious to know if any president left the stock market at a lower point than when he was inaugurated. Uh, actually, fun times. George W. Bush left office with a net loss of 26.5% in the stock market. Okay. That's a big deal. And I think also that's reflected in his uh, popularity upon leaving office and to this day. For the record, uh, Ronald Reagan, who's seen by conservatives, I think, as a kind of patron saint of 20th century conservative right. conservatism, uh, left office with a net gain of 147% in his eight years in office. Barack Obama beats him out by one percentage point at 148.3%. In Ronald Reagan's defense, though, which is not something I say often, the stock market was in the trash when Barack Obama, or recovering from the trash when Absolutely. Barack Obama became president. Absolutely. And Bill Clinton had a 228.9% gain in his Whoa. stock market performance while president. Now, let's pick apart why this is maybe a bad KPI. Great. So one thing, I, like, one thing that immediately pops to mind is that the stock market, particularly, let's be extra specific. The, the, most people, when they talk about the stock market, are actually talking about the Dow Jones Industrial yeah. Average, which is not the NASDAQ or the S&P 500. So the Dow Jones Industrial Average is uh, a basket of 30 publicly traded companies in various industries. They are not always the same over time, which right. is very important, right? Because if you really wanted to have an empirical measure of performance even if you were picking it by company, you'd probably want those companies to be consistent over time. But companies are merging, dying, being born all the time. And industry, new industries are being born. Exactly. Yeah. So every few years, the Dow Jones Industrial Average removes a company, adds a company. So mm -hmm. that automatically blows up the uh, empirical rigor of... Well, no, I don't think so. Because they make their best effort to add a company that kind of reflects the company that they're removing. Okay. But, but go on. Okay, I'll... I'll give you that. But the big one, too, is that I think a big campaign issue, this is a lot of a lot of what Bernie Sanders was talking about when he was running, and I think this, he hit, really hit a chord. And in some ways, Donald Trump hit maybe the same chord with a different constituency, was that when you look at the stock market as a, specifically the Dow Jones Industrial Average, as a metric to gauge economic health, sure, at, in broad strokes it is, but it is 
a measure of the future growth potential mm-hmm. of 30 very successful publicly traded companies, mm-hmm. the gains really only reflect directly the financial gains of the stockholders of those 30 companies. Right. And we know in broad strokes that uh, a lot of those stocks are held by institutional investors, by mutual funds, um, by even huge institutions like universities and and states, right? Mm -hmm. But not a lot of average Americans own a lot of stocks Mm -hmm. and do not directly hold a lot of stocks. So in a thought experiment... In a thought experiment where all 330 million Americans owned one share, they owned 30 shares of stock, and it was one share of each of those companies, Mm -hmm. then every American would be doing 138% better than they were when Barack Obama was sworn into office. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that just goes to show some of the logical flaws. Or worked for those 30 companies. I mean, how many people work for those 30 companies? So therefore, even though they're not shareholders, benefit when the companies are doing well. That's a great point. A few thousand, I mean, not a few thousand, several hundreds of thousands or maybe a few million people work for those companies. But the vast majority of Americans hold no stock and do not draw their employment from the companies that are listed in the Dow Jones Industrial. But another point to that too is that, sure, if your company's growing and your stock is up, you're going to have, first of all, more capital to invest in growing your workforce mm-hmm. and investing in new markets and opening new divisions. So you're going to be hiring more people. That's a positive economic sure. side. But it's also incumbent upon those people. The people that are really ahead are the people that participate in their comp- in their corporate stock buyback plans. So most of these companies have plans whereby you get a little bit of a di- you get- you get a little bit of a discount um, on the price of the stock, and there are rules as to how long oh, you right. have to hold it, et cetera. Those people are doing great, right? right. The, the mid, mid-level managers at Apple that have been uh, maxing out their corporate stock buyback plan um, since they started are are doing are, are probably some of the most uh, uh, freewheeling people in the American economy. Um, but that is not the average American. The fact that it disproportionately reflects you know, these companies and particularly their CEOs leads me to my next KPI, which is median household income. I think that's a much stronger metric to look at. Excuse me, adjusted for inflation. Right. And I think that's a much stronger number to look at, but that also in and of itself is not perfect, but it's, but it's better than stock market performance. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk to me about why you picked it. On the surface, it seems to capture, what is it, the kitchen table issues, right? Uh, or what is it called? Kitchen table dining, economics. Yeah. Or dining. Which dining table room? do people do their bills? Kitchen table. <laughs> I do it on the computer. So <laughs> You're so out of touch. Uh, because if the median household, the average, the middle household in America is making more money now than they were four years ago, adjusted for inflation, then that's a good thing, right? I think so. I think it's hard to argue that it's a bad thing. Although something that I would like to mention now, and I don't want to cut off your point if nope. you've got more to say, nope. we spend a dis- disproportionate amount of time and energy looking at financial, financial like hard money financial KPIs, mm-hmm. which are important and should not be ignored. Mm-hmm. But there are other things that could be focused on. Yeah. So like I have, a, I have a hypothetical scenario here, right? What if instead of saying – what if instead of Donald Trump coming into office and saying – 
Um, I'm going to create so many jobs. I'm going to bring so many jobs back. You're going to get tired of winning. <laughs> We're all going to get rich. I know how to be rich. I, I know how to get rich, and I'm going to teach you how to be rich, right? Mm-hmm. Just vote for me for president and don't uh, empirically judge me by any realistic metric. Um, what if instead he came in and said, 80% of you are overweight, obese, yeah. or morbidly obese, and I'm going to cut that in half. I'm going to make half of you thin again. And we're going to cut the cost of health care. We're going to improve your quality of life. Your sex life is going to be better. You're going to be healthier. It's going to be great. Right. And I've got this plan. Right. As cavalier or as body shaming as that might sound a little bit, I'm tiptoeing into some weird waters there. Right. But that would really uh, move the needle (laughs) on bettering the lives of many Americans. But is that an interesting KPI? So I want to take a step back and say two things. First of all, median household income does not capture the total picture because it is possible for the number to rise thanks to no gains made by people in the bottom half of the income ladder, right? Right. You can have people at the top making way exponentially more money For every every dollar you add at the top, you could remove one from the bottom and that median would still stay stay the same. Yeah, and in reality, it's not happening that way. You're adding $5 at the top and taking away one at the bottom. So overall, the trend is going up, even though it would really suck to be in the lower 50 percentile. Secondly, is the president the steward of the American economy? I think that the answer is yes, but not fully yes it's like cars that are not like directly mechanically controlled anymore it's like uh, the uh-huh. steering column isn't directly attached to the to the to the chassis and the steering wait what so the old way cars worked are that the steering wheel and the steering column were actually attached to like the axles that right. turn the physically turn the wheel and they're not like that anymore no 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 um i think the term's called drive by wire or i might be reversing that. So how is that like the president? So the president's kind of, it's kind of like that. Like the president's kind of the steering wheel, but you've got a lot of things in between him. You've got the American military, you've got the Congress, you've got the governors of the states, you've got Mm -hmm. geopolitical randomness. You've got a lot of stuff between the president at the steering wheel and the actual wheels in the road. Mm -hmm. Um, But the president, I think, largely does steer the steering wheel, right? The president Mm -hmm. sets the agenda for what we're going to be focusing on. The president puts out a budget, whether it's approved or not. Mm-hmm. It sets the terms of the negotiation with Congress as to what's going to be approved, sure. what's going to be funded, what's not. Also, the executive branch employs so many people that like there's stuff that the president of the United States doesn't need congressional approval for right. that can influence the lives and jobs and well-being of not only a tremendous number of people, but in, in aggregate, a tremendous number of microeconomies around the world, right? The president could snap his fingers tomorrow and abolish uh, an, like an administration that uh, directly reports the president as part of the executive branch. Right. That's an example. So I'm curious to hear what you think. Obviously, the president wants the American economy to be stronger when he leaves office than when he arrived. But again, it comes down to Whose interests in the economy does the president represent? Is he representing the CEOs or the the multinational corporations? Is the president's job to make sure that Exxon, you know, has access to open markets? Or is it the president's job to make sure that the workers, the people who work for Exxon, who are Americans, have a better job in four years or making more money in four years than they were when he was inaugurated? That gives me a crazy thought. Like, it kind of makes me wonder if that has anything to do with the disparity in popularity between Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush. Even if a lot of normal people got screwed under Ronald Reagan's presidency, Uh at least he kept 
in air quotes, his people, right? The uh-huh. CEOs of the corporations, et cetera, the military commanders, right? He kept his people not only happy, but they ended up looking at those stock market numbers. They ended up all right. Mm-hmm. Whereas George W. Bush kind of screwed the exact constituency that many people kind of fear in an almost like a conspiratorial or like uh, almost like there's this cabal between the this like literal cabal between the president <laughs> and all the, like the heads of business is like very like that scene in network you get up on your little 21 inch screen and howl about america and democracy there is no america there is no democracy there is only ibm and itt and AT&T, and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. But like, if anything, George W. Bush screwed those people. Not deliberately, but did screw those people. So another aspect, another KPI that we haven't talked about is anything relating to the military. Military engagements, uh, you know, American soldiers and sailors killed overseas, and airmen. That's another way that you could measure the success of a presidency, right? Yeah, I, I wrote down a couple of things like that, like um, lives lost in direct military conflict, mm-hmm. lives, lives lost in terrorist attacks, mm-hmm. um, number of international incidents. What gets weird, though, and we're starting to tiptoe in this direction, uh-huh. is that when you live in a global world uh-huh. and when – De facto, whether we're trending in this direction or not, I have some doubts, unfortunately. But up to, let's say from World War II till now, Mm -hmm. the American president is the primary actor on a geopolitical stage in which the United States of America is one of very few superpowers. Right. Therefore, you could make an argument, I think, that the president of the United States of America is actually the steward of a ship that's much larger than the United States of America. Mm -hmm. But in terms of KPIs, we don't gather data or measure very effectively those KPIs on a global scale. Right. Right? So you could say um, in an American world order where America keeps kind of the Pax Americana, right, Um, should we be looking not at United States service members' deaths, but – deaths of all civilians around the world Mm -hmm. as a KPI for the success, not only of the United States and the American military and the American president, but the kind of world order, Mm -hmm. the geopolitical world order. And if so, if you look at civilian deaths over the course of the 20th century, that post-World War II world order is tremendously effective, right? right? The, the, the uh, American led coalition, um, with a lot of very ugly pieces to it. There were a lot of wars. There's a lot of nuclear weapons and, um, a lot of scary times, but by that metric, a number of people dying in armed conflict went down tremendously after World War II. I don't know if that's true, and also technology does not favor your argument. Fight me on this. I love this. Well, you can I think kill, it's true. It is easier to kill people on the national, international level now than ever before. Like, there was a practical limit to how many people Napoleon's army could kill. They had to get within cannon range. Right. And now we can drop bombs, or and we don't even have to fly the planes. Drones can drop bombs that are capable of much more destruction. So while there may be fewer conflicts around the world today, and I'm not sure that that's true, but I'll, okay, I'll go there, does that necessarily translate into fewer people being killed in those conflicts? So in, I've got some 
some data for you. At its peak, the deadliest year after World War II mm-hmm. in the world, combined the number of deaths uh, attributable to war mm-hmm. in 1950 were 596,086 people died. This data goes up until 2006, but in 2006, around the world, 15,000. What? In 2006. This is the middle of the war in Afghanistan. This is the middle of the war in Iraq. Um, it could have gone up a little bit or down a little bit since then. Like I said, this data only goes to 2006. And this doesn't include famine and this doesn't include right, right. disease, right? But this is people dying in armed conflict. Wow. Down tremendously since World War II. Yeah. So how much of that is the American president how is responsible that? for? A lot, I'd say. A lot. Oh, absolutely. Because I think a lot of these spikes, particularly in the 1960s, you see a big spike for Vietnam. Sure. I mean, all it takes is the decision of one commander-in-chief to enter a war or exit a war, right? Wow. Tying it back, I think that post-Reconstruction, the American president's primary job is to service the largest corporations in this country. I would not disagree with that, and but I feel sad about that. Yeah, inside. I feel tremendously sad, but, and especially when you look at armed conflict, right? The sending in the Marines to... Any of the Latin American countries that have seen the Marines in the last 110 years, rarely is it because American lives were directly threatened. Usually it's because American corporate interests were threatened, right? The Dominican Republic is going to national, threatening to nationalize the railroad or whatever. And that's sad. It's sad. But if, that, if those are the rules that they're playing by, should those be the rules by which they are measured? Or is it the other way around? Should gov- we set other rules and make them play to ours? A government of by and for the shareholders? Jesus. I think I, I would really, like on an ethical and moral level, argue against that. But if you were to ask me to describe to a space alien the way it is, right. I would totally agree with your description. The companies are even more international now than they were 40 years ago. So that also begs the question of like, what does the idea of America mean we look at this so much as like are people being shot by terrorists are they being blown up by terrorists or did people make a a net gain of money in their bank account in a year Mm -hmm. and those things are loosely tied to happiness Mm -hmm. right if you get shot or blown up by a terrorist you're probably not going to be very happy your family's probably not going to be very happy if you lose a lot of money you're probably not going to be very happy but there are huge untouched regions of human experience which I'm actually really curious for you to talk a little bit about because you're a writer, right? Mm-hmm. What are the, what are people's stories that could inform how we design these KPIs, right? Is this is this uh, is this a teenage girl uh, of Native American descent that's growing up on a reservation and has seen alcoholism wipe out her entire community? Is this a uh, is this a teenage girl in a privileged white suburb of Philadelphia that really wants to be a computer programmer but has been teased for wanting to be in science, technology, or engineering her entire childhood Mm -hmm. and is now thinking about settling for a communications major, nothing against communications majors. What are the human stories here that could help us really improve people's lives, not necessarily completely detached from financial performance or military prowess, but certainly not, but certainly with a lot more nuance. In 2010, last census, 80% of Americans were considered overweight, obese, or extremely obese. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about that is that if you look at the graph, 
overweight people, which is a certain definition of BMI, is actually 35%, but it's been flat. No, no, no. I'm saying 10 to 20% over uh, ideal body weight or something like that. Oh, something like that, yeah. I'm not quite sure on that. But the point I wanted to make is from 1960, I'm looking at data from 1962 to to 2010, flat, Mm -hmm. no change. Same number of people were overweight, right? Could use to could stand to lose ten or fifteen pounds in 1962 as today. Mm-hmm. Almost that entire gain, right? Not only is in uh, obese and extreme obesity, but it starts at a certain point. Mm-hmm. There's an inflection point in the late 70s and early 80s where obesity and extreme obesity takes off. So my question is, what happened then? Why did it get so high? It's a 30% 30 increase at the top end Mm -hmm. since 1980. And that has huge effects, right? That ties into financial performance. Those people, people that are extremely overweight are theoretically less financially productive, incur more costs for medical care, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But also from what I understand, and I'm really sensitive here about being normative and body shaming, but from for in a lot of ways, it sucks to be extremely over overweight, to be extremely obese by the by the medical definition of it, right? Yeah. It is worse for your cardiovascular health. You feel worse about yourself physically. From what I understand, you often feel worse about yourself socially and culturally. Yeah, it impedes people's uh, sex lives. It impedes people's self image, their s- mental health, and then especially as you get older, then it gets into all kinds of secondary and tertiary health effects that right. often have. Fatalities involved. Right. The, they're terminal, right? Untreated diabetes. But Nick, what you're talking about is a a social program that America would never stand for. I can see where you're it's coming one from, thing but I want you to the first lady to encourage healthy eating, you know, but the country would never stand for a concerted on a national level hey, we need fewer obese people in this country. That steps on the ideas of personal liberty that are the bedrock of the idea of America. I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with your diagnosis of what the reality is today. But I would ask you this counter, counterpoint question. In uh, polite society, you don't talk about sex, religion, or politics at a dinner party. Uh-huh. Okay? A lot of people don't talk about money. Uh-huh. Right? How did, it get, how did it become appropriate for the president of the United States to say, I'm going to make you rich? I'm, gonna, I'm going to intervene or have an effect on your financial personal life, which is theoretically, according to the American individualist mm-hmm. ethos, uh, none of your fucking business. Right. How I'm doing financially. Thank you very much. Um, how did that become okay? But all the other areas, and I would even argue stuff like the president of the United States is not only talking about but influencing, influencing people's pocketbook. He's talking about an influencing religious-based rhetoric, um, hate crimes, and their ability to immigrate or em- immigrate or emigrate from our country, right? Right. Uh, so we're now now the president's diddling in religion. <laughs> um, we also have politicians have for years and years and years wanted to get into our sex lives, right? right. You can't sleep with another man. You right. can't terminate that pregnancy even if it's two weeks along. Right. Pretty much. Body issues and like nutrition are like one of the few taboos left in a world where 150 years ago, I don't think I'm going way out on a limb here, but I can't imagine James K. Polk hitting the the campaign circuit talking about influencing people's religious beliefs or practices, uh, influencing people's financial uh, outcomes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. It's just a counterpoint. I don't know. That's fair. And there are other health related ones, right? Yeah. Well, 
And that's the other thing is that the health issues change over time, right? Like 50 years ago, it would have been smoking. And the government has intervened with right. smoking to tremendous effect. And I think that's a perfect example, right? Like at first it was, don't tell me what, to, I still know people that smoke, very few of them. Mm -hmm. And those people still say, don't tell me what to do with my body. And those, still be, those people still kind of have a point. Right. But you also can't argue with a 50 year sustained effort on the part of somewhat the federal government and also state governments and local governments mm -hmm. uh, and the soft power of Hollywood and, and American culture changing over time to tremendous positive effect right. in public health. Okay, yeah, you've convinced me because I was going to say, you know, what would smoking look like today if there was no such thing as secondhand smoke? Because secondhand smoke was really the way that the government and the levers of power got their way in to legislating smoking, right? Because it does affect everyone. Totally. But if, again, if you want to look at the KPIs and you want to look at the data, um, secondhand smoking is really bad, uh -huh. right? But it's not as bad as actually smoking in the first place. Right. And there are also a lot of secondary and tertiary effects that also, I don't want to get too crazy here, but are very similar to obesity, right? Right, right. So for example, you could say, for, put secondhand smoking on, this, on the back burner. You could say children growing up in a household that where smoking is acceptable are much more likely to smoke themselves as adults mm -hmm. and are much more likely to try smoking as adolescents. And the earlier you try smoking, the, the more likely it is you'll smoke as an adult and the uh, harder it's going to be for you to quit as an adult. Mm -hmm. I also say this full disclosure as a person that grew up in a family with a lot of smokers and I smoked myself for about five years, never as much as like a pack a day, but I was a consistent smoker mm -hmm. for about five years and quitting was very hard for me. Mm -hmm. You could also point to a lot of research that says that children that grow up in households where both parents are obese are likely to be obese, mm -hmm. that there are cultural effects to what the family prepares, how nutrition, this like nutritional science um, and bio and human biology and health and well-being are communicated and educated within a household. You can also point to stuff like epigenetic effects, where when a person in generation one has certain physical like certain physical attributes, that it it unlocks at a macro level certain genetic traits or adaptations that are then passed on to generation two and three. Mm -hmm. um, so you could say, and I've seen some data. I don't have anything in front of me to point to, unfortunately, where parental obesity, and even the opposite, parental uh, populations uh, where parents grew up in times of like famine, that there were secondary, like second and third generation uh, physical effects right. on their children and grandchildren. So these things aren't easy, right? You can point to cigarette smoking and say, what I do with my body is my choice. Mm -hmm. Fine. Like, I think that's a valid leg to stand on. You could also say, whatever I eat is my choice. Fine, valid leg to stand on. So while I'm not saying the government should come in and monitor everything you put in your mouth the way I don't think the government should come in and stop you from smoking cigarettes if that's what you choose to do. Mm -hmm. That certainly would be in support of things like excise taxes on cigarettes, right. applying to things like soda and applying to things like fast food, right? Um, now you get into some very interesting class-based arguments right. where the price of food, the the quality of a calorie of food and the nutritional density of a calorie of food is not equal across kind of income brackets, right? Mm -hmm. And wealthy people could spend the same amount of money as a poor person, but the access, I mean, either the literal access of what a poor person has spent their life eating, they might not reach for the kale, they might reach for a cheeseburger, mm -hmm. but also 
when you get outside of urban areas and right. into suburban or rural areas, uh, there aren't many Whole Foods yep. in rural West Virginia, as far as I understand, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's like an like what's around you. It's I mean that's five shows right there of just nutrition. But obesity as a health health and well being based KPI is an interesting one. Yeah. Also similar but not the same. I mean, life expectancy is another one. Life expectancy, quality of life, human happiness, mental health, um, infant mortality. I like to look at kind of future-oriented stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You could look at um, – I'm a big fan of not only looking at stuff like college graduation rates but high school graduation rates, uh, pre-K matriculation, mm-hmm. access to child care early in life, high-quality child care, daycare, et cetera. I mean, at another one that's related to public health, which is su- the suicide rate. Yeah. So I don't think that we should be approaching it like on an individual basis, much like obesity or smoking, but as a policy. If our policies were driven by what can we do to improve the quality of life so that people, you know, thousands of Americans aren't killing themselves every right. year, then how, how different would this country be in a positive way? I mean, I think if I – this is like a bit radical and presumptuous, but like if I had run for president in 2016 mm-hmm. – I might point to suicide rates and depression rates and rates of PTSD in the armed services mm-hmm. and veterans of the armed services. I would point to opioid overdoses that mm-hmm. are rising dramatically across the country. I would just point to general human happiness or American happiness in this case. And I would say the Affordable Care Act is great and we should keep moving forward mm-hmm. in the same vein. But what I'd like to propose as a policy is like a universal health care program, a moonshot for, for mental health yep. to say that – it's an area of human well-being that has been overlooked for a lot of human history. Mm-hmm. It's still kind of uh, it's still kind of taboo in, in a lot of circles, and yet there's so much data and evidence and research to support the immediate benefits of positive mental health, mm-hmm. but the secondary and tertiary benefits to society, to an individual's well-being and sense of purpose. I, like that's a KPI I would be very interested in, not only tracking but judging. Um, yeah. presidents by anyone by really great we solved it good all in a day's work <laughs> see you in four years yeah all right um, thank you for listening this has been robot f kennedy i'm nick daze you can find me on twitter at n-i-c-k-d-a-z-e i'm eddie quintana you can find me on twitter at eddie quintana q-u-i-n-t-a-n-a uh, we hope you'll join us next time uh, if you have any ideas of kpi that we should be holding this president and any future presidents to please let us know just leave it at that <laughs>